In the 1950s, the U.S. government came up with a plan to solve what it called the Indian problem. The only real solution for the Navajo was to uh, cease to be a Navajo. Assimilation. Take the Indian off the reservation, make him a white person. By moving Native Americans to cities. She said, we're going to move and we're going to make a better life. Ideally, if you relocated an entire reservation, then there would be no need for a tribal government, there would be no need for an Indian clinic. You know, that was the federal government's attempt at eliminating us. It didn't work. It seems to me like the more you want to take something from someone, the tighter they hold on. But it left wounds. Nobody is going to heal us but ourselves. This hour, uprooted the 1950s plan to erase Indian country. From Minnesota Public Radio and APM Reports. Early in the summer of 2018, a handful of tents appears on a strip of grass in Minneapolis. On one side is a concrete sound barrier. On the other side, a sidewalk, a guardrail, and then an eight-lane highway. It's not a nice place to walk, much less live. But over the next couple months, a lot more people move in, set up their own tents. A homeless encampment in Minneapolis continues to grow, and many are now working diligently to stop the expansion. Now estimated to hold over 120 men, women, and children. It is now one of the largest homeless camps this state has ever seen. From the highway, you can see a couple of large teepees towering over the tents. Smoke rises from the tops. A few feet from one of the teepees is Angela Senegal's Bowen's tent. Um, and we have um, several things around it. I got rugs in front of it because it's my house. This is my home. Angela is Native American. So is nearly everyone else living in the encampment. People call it the Wall of Forgotten Natives. What do you think now that it's so big? I love it. I love that all the natives, homeless natives all come together as one. It kind of like feels like way back when the tribes were a big tribe and we're living outside and we're surviving. It's a community. Meals are served from a long table in the center. Women and children first. People living here help cook and clean. At least once a day, someone comes through burning sage, cedar, or sweet grass to purify the place. Oh, there's some smudge. Yes, hey, please, please. And so, yes, I'm smudging right now because they bring the sage around. Thank you, Medaki Ase. That means all my relations, and all my relations means everybody, heaven, earth, everything on earth, all the green, all the animals, all the people, all the sickly. But other than that, all right, they're just playing the drums down there. You might want to go listen to some native music. My name is Max Nestorak. I reported on the encampment for Minnesota Public Radio, and I was there nearly every day for months. One of my first questions was, where did this come from? People told me they came to this spot because they heard it's where you could get food, clothes, and supplies. And the new mayor told police not to break up the camp. But it wasn't a safe place to live. Drug use was everywhere. There was violence and sex trafficking. And winter was coming. Good afternoon, everyone. At the end of September, I went to a city council meeting. They were trying to figure out if they could build an emergency shelter. The room was packed. There were people from the neighborhood and Native activists. Tribes from across the state sent representatives from Red Lake, White Earth, Leech Lake, and Fond du Lac. I'm Sam Strong. I'm here representing uh, the Red Lake Nation. Sam Strong, the tribal secretary for the Red Lake Nation, stood up and told the council, look, there's a reason so many of the people camped along a highway are Native American. This was all set in motion a generation ago by the federal government. In the 1950s, they relocated Natives from reservations to Minneapolis and other urban areas. It was a termination policy, and obviously it didn't work. But what it did do was it created a segment of our populations that are here in the cities that for decades and decades have experienced homelessness. This grabbed my attention. This was the first I'd heard of the federal government relocating Native people off of reservations. And when I started to look into it, I learned it was part of a larger plan. 
to eliminate tribes and erase native culture. And it wasn't something that happened in the distant past. There are people still alive who were relocated. That's what this documentary is about. It's called Uprooted and comes to you from Minnesota Public Radio and APM Reports. In 1952, most Native Americans lived on reservations, or very near them. But that year, the United States government began paying for Native people to move to cities. And when I say pay, I mean they gave people one-way tickets and a couple hundred dollars. What they promised was a better life. When the family members have selected the apartment they want, friendly bureau staff helps them settle. The Bureau of Indian Affairs created this promotional video advertising Chicago. It shows a bureau official behind a desk helping a young Native couple, both well-dressed and holding young children. Then it cuts to a factory floor where you see men with heavy goggles and welding torches. Some Indian people, as this man from Wisconsin, do so well that they become foremen. You see Native men working on big diesel engines, cutting hair, and even preparing lobsters and chef's whites. You see Native children watching TV and their moms strolling through leafy neighborhoods with their new white friends. City life may be disorienting at first, the narrator warns, but pretty soon you'll be riding the L train with ease. The women ride it to shop, the children to school. And as they ride, they talk to people and find that not all of them are strangers. This idyllic picture of middle-class urban American life stands in such stark contrast to the way things are on reservations at this time. No running water, you know, no electricity, no transportation. Doreen Day was born in 1959 in northern Minnesota near the Net Lake Reservation, also called Boys Fort. Like most reservations, Net Lake is remote. There weren't many jobs in the area, or stores, or schools. The roads were terrible. Doreen was the youngest of 17 kids, and she remembers how physically strong her mom was. She hauled wood, she cut wood, she hauled water, she hauled clothes down to the rapids to wash them and then hauled them back home to hang them up. You know, my father was a hunter-trapper. He was like the best trapper in our area for many years. Doreen's older sister Sharon says the kids helped with everything. We picked berries together um, during ricing season. If you're old enough to rice, you riced. Harvesting wild rice was a big event. Kids wouldn't go back to school until the season was over at the end of September. They also learned to fish and catch rabbits. My dad taught us how to set snares. Then it was up to us. He built birch bark canoes, toboggans, snowshoes. Share stories with us um, about our history and the migration story and all of those things, drawing them on the ground. He could sing Indian music all day and all night. And he'd never sing the same song twice. He never had a drum. I don't know why. But he would turn the coffee can over, Arco coffee can, and then he would sing and then we would dance. One day, when Doreen was four and Sharon was 12, their dad came home and told the family about an offer he'd received from the BIA to move to Cleveland, Ohio. And it was posed as a question, like, should we do this? And then he gave all of the, you know, the information that he had that the Bureau of Indian Affairs had said there were uh, many people from Net Lake living there. He would be given a job as a heavy equipment operator. Um, Life would be good. So we went off on a train to Cleveland, Ohio. It was like this luxurious, um, grand adventure, right? And there were so many people and, you know, bustling and going and the lights. And after we got there, we were placed in the ghetto. Into a, um, it was a fourplex. Yeah. Like a living room, dining room, kitchen, and two bedrooms on the side with a bathroom. There were eight of them at this point in a two-bedroom apartment. During the day, their dad went out looking for work. And because it was summer and there was no school, the kids stayed at home. They didn't let us go anywhere. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't, uh, they were very, like, protective. And, you know, this is all, um, you know, my mother, I don't believe it ever 
gone very far, maybe Duluth. Doreen's dad didn't get a skilled construction job. He also didn't become a foreman or a chef at a fine restaurant. My dad um, was hired as a dishwasher. And all the other Native people the BIA had said were in Cleveland? Wherever the other Indians were, they weren't near us. The Day family story fits a pattern that was being repeated all across the country with tens of thousands of Native families. First, the promise. There'd be more jobs there and more opportunities. Yeah, if you want to go to school, you want to get a job. There was Chicago and Oakland and... Kansas City. Denver, I think. Frisco, Minneapolis, Chicago. The schools were wonderful and jobs were plentiful and all of that. Then, the shock. I mean, there was billions of people there. Nobody slept, it seemed like. Using a light switch, that was, I mean, it was, to me, I was scared of electricity. I wouldn't go on elevators. Kids there who were not Indian. I mean, that I've never seen before. And then, disappointment and hardship. Couldn't find jobs, couldn't find work because of the uh, racism. Of course, without a job, you couldn't afford the rent. What we end up doing is, like, during the summertime, we would actually live in the park. There was not enough housing for anybody, much less Indian people. It seemed like everybody wound up coming back. After about a month in Cleveland, Sharon and Doreen's parents wanted to go back, too. I don't think that was a family vote. I think they just decided, like, you know, no, we're not staying here. But the BIA had a rule. They wouldn't pay for people to return home to their reservations. Relocation was supposed to be permanent. The BIA even made people sign a pledge saying they intended to stay in their destination city forever. In fact, the program's success was measured by how many people stayed for a year. It didn't matter if they were unemployed or homeless or hungry. Douglas Miller is a historian at Oklahoma State University. Many people got stuck in the city and wanted to go back, um, but where they were too far away and didn't have the money or the means to get there. So it's a, it's a bit disingenuous on the part of the BIA to say that a success story is anyone who stays in the city for up to one year. But that's exactly how the BIA evaluated its own program. Here I want to get into the why of this story. Why was the government so intent on moving Native people from reservations to cities and keeping them there? One reason, and I'll get into others later, is that politicians and government workers believed Native people had to assimilate into white mainstream American society for their own good. I found a radio report from an anthropologist named Ruth Underhill, who traveled through Indian country in the 1950s. Here she is interviewing a white BIA official working on the Navajo reservation named Mel Bickle. Well, I've always felt that the only real solution for the Navajo was to uh, cease to be a Navajo, to get off the reservation and become a, a citizen just like everybody else and, and uh, make his living in the same way as other people. Forget that he is a Navajo, in other words. You don't think there can be any compromise between keeping the Navajo way of life and having the, the prosperity of a white man? I don't think so. This had pretty much been the prevailing assumption for at least the past century. With the creation of compulsory boarding schools in the late 1800s, the government hoped to mold Native children into white, Christian, English-speaking adults. The educational philosophy of the first boarding school was summed up by its founder as, quote, kill the Indian, save the man. In the 1950s, the federal government's drive for assimilation took on a new intensity. Donald Fixco is a historian at Arizona State University. You look at the times because we're following uh, World War II and becoming involved in the Cold War. It's really kind of a, a clinching of American ideas and trying to um, say that everybody should conform. And if you don't, then you're un-American. And the man who gets put in charge of the BIA? Dylan S. Meyer. You probably don't know his name, but you do know his work. He just finished another large government relocation program. Here he is talking about that job with a TV reporter. Mr. Meyer, how many Japanese were there evacuated from the West Coast? Approximately 110,000 people, men, women, and children. Meyer was uniquely qualified for the job at the BIA because he had just overseen the forced relocation of Japanese Americans during World War II to prison camps and then on to cities scattered across the country. The government promised Japanese Americans wonderful lives after leaving prison camps, and they offered them $25 and a one-way ticket to get started. 
Or perhaps they'll shop for a job in one of the cities where the War Relocation Authority has a relocation office. Kansas City, Chicago, Cleveland, New York, or any one of about 40 other cities and towns. Meyer used the same playbook and brought with him many of the same officials from the War Relocation Authority when he took the helm of the BIA. He launched the relocation program in 1952. And then a year later, Congress took assimilation a step further. Historian Donald Fixico. The government has always wanted to, uh, so to speak, get out of the Indian business, and by getting out of the Indian business also meant dissolving the treaties. In 1953, Congress passed House Concurrent Resolution 108. It actually comes across like it might be a good thing. It says Native Americans are to become, quote, subject to the same laws and entitled to the same privileges and responsibilities as other Americans. What it actually did was establish the Congress's intent to eliminate all Native tribes, one by one. They'd have to convince each tribe to agree to it, but eventually, the government expected there would be no more BIA, no more federal support to Native people, no more tribal governments, and no more reservations. Uh, We've heard from over 70 tribes to date, and the voice has been absolutely unanimous. We have never heard so much resistance on the part of the Indians to any move. This is Oliver Lafarge, a white anthropologist and president of the Association on American Indian Affairs, speaking on CBS in 1954. You have the most serious attack on the rights of the Indians that has occurred, literally, since the founding of the Republic. Well, now, if the Indians don't want it, what's behind it? Who does want it? Well, um, a lot of people are impatient with the failure we have made and think that perhaps we could do better if we merely cut these people loose. Dissolving the treaties, also called termination, was pioneered by Senator Arthur Watkins, a Republican of Utah. He compared it to the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed millions of enslaved Americans. Watkins thought the government was spending too much money on Native people, and that federal aid nurtured dependence. The government was providing schools and roads and hospitals in Indian country, albeit not very well, because it signed treaties saying it would. Some tribes were even largely funding these things themselves through logging or mining. The government collected the revenue and doled it back out in the form of BIA services. Ending this kind of paternalism appealed to many Native people, but not on the condition of eliminating all federal protections. When the anthropologist Ruth Underhill asked Native people about termination in 1957, what she heard was fear and suspicion. Frank Mitchell, an old Navajo, tried to voice the feeling. The speaker you hear is, as usual, the interpreter, with some Navajo rumbles in the background. Now, the, the people are finding all kinds of uh, materials in the interior of the, of the land, of the reservation. For instance, oil and gas and stuff, and uranium and whatnot, and all kinds of ores. Now, we feel that at times, we feel that, uh, that the, the white people uh, knows that there, there are such things in existence on the Navajo Reservation, and before the Navajo becomes wise to it, they want to grab it. I see how you feel, but is there any proof of that? <laughs> he says he doesn't know about proof, but his laugh seems to say, do I really need it? This wouldn't be the first time a federal Indian policy ended in a land grab. If the U.S. Congress had wondered what Native people thought would improve conditions on their own lands, they got at least one detailed proposal. The National Congress of American Indians called for a kind of Marshall Plan for Indian country, like the U.S. had done for Europe after World War II. After all, Native Americans had served in the war at some of the highest rates of any group, and the war had hurt reservation economies too. They argued that given time and investment, reservations could prosper under Native control. But this proposal didn't go anywhere. I should mention Senator Arthur Watkins had another motive for terminating tribal sovereignty, in addition to cutting federal spending and opening Native land up to outside industry. He believed it was God's will. Watkins was Mormon, and in a letter to the leaders of the Church of Latter-day Saints in 1954, he wrote, quote, It seems to me that the time has come for us to help the Indians stand on their own two feet and become a white and delightsome people as the Book of Mormon prophesied they would become, unquote. What he's referencing, the white and delightsome people, is a prophecy that at least some Mormons took literally. They believed if Native Americans joined the Church of Latter-day Saints, they would physically become whiter. 
One of the biggest barriers to Watkins' termination was the tribes who had to agree to it. So sometimes he resorted to coercion and duplicity. For example, the federal government owed the Menominee $8.5 million for mismanaging their timber resources. That worked out to about $1,500 per person, more money than most Menominee had ever seen. He personally went out to Wisconsin and met with Menominee leaders and told them, if you don't accept termination, you're not getting the money. The tribe approved it without many members fully understanding what they agreed to until it was too late. The tribal government was disbanded, the reservation was turned into private property, and divided among its members. The area became the poorest county in the state. Many Menominee people had to sell their land just to pay the property taxes. And you can probably guess who bought it. Today, there are white landowners in the land of the Menominee, with private beach clubs and lakefront homes. Land that belonged to Native people was vanishing. So when city life didn't work out, there was sometimes no reservation to return to. And even if there was, it was tough to get back. Doreen and Charinday's father saved a month of wages as a dishwasher to get all eight of them out of Cleveland. They went back to northern Minnesota. The trip out there was sort of like this grand adventure. And then we came back on the Greyhound bus. And all I remember was like my body moving for days, you know, it just seemed like for days. And coming back to who knows what. We didn't have much when we left, but now we had nothing, right? Lots of people returned to the reservation. Most people ended up going back, actually, depending on whose statistics you believe. In his book, Custer Died for Your Sins, Vine Deloria Jr. wrote that people used to tell a joke about that. Back when the space program started, there was a lot of talk about sending men to the moon. But they couldn't figure out how to get them back. The joke was, they should send an Indian there on relocation. He'd figure out some way to get back. But even though people faced hardships in cities, life on reservations was often worse. Federal money was largely going to moving Native people to cities and not improving reservations. Lots of people turned around and relocated again. Each year, the relocation program set a new record in the number of Native people sent to cities. And every year, interest in the program exceeded the funds available. Many Native people relocated on their own without any BIA support. By 1960, a quarter of Native people were urban residents. By 1970, it would be nearly half. Of course, as people left reservations, reservations became even worse off. Not too long after Sharon and Doreen's family returned from relocation, they left again. Doreen remembers her mom brought just one suitcase. She said, we're going to move and we're going to make a better life. They went to another city that didn't want them. But this time, they stayed, and they became part of a national movement to win back Native rights. Doreen Day was seven years old when she arrived in St. Paul with her mom and four of her siblings. My father didn't move because he could not live in the city. And I think that might have been part of the plan because my mother was um, trying to create a better life. And what he was at times having the influence of drinking and that wasn't good. Her mom found them a small apartment and took the first job she got, cleaning houses on the millionaire's row. And so she went up to Summit Avenue to clean the, you know, mansion-type homes. Her mom never learned to drive. She'd walk to each house and then walk home each night. Sometimes Doreen would go with her. I remember one house that had, like, a black marble flooring in the living room. And I was sure it was glass, and I was sure that I, if I walked on it, I'd probably break it. So I'd sit in the dining room, and she'd get me this box of silver, and I'd just polish silver while she cleaned. They were expected to enter through the back door. And the family faced other insults. You know, the people who spit in front of you on the sidewalk. In school, some of the kids were bullied. They were prodded, poked, all the racist remarks. The federal government's grand plan was that Native people would assimilate and disappear into the white American mainstream. But the white American mainstream, by and large, wasn't looking to absorb them. The Bureau of Indian Affairs anticipated this. It actually published a booklet for white Americans titled The Indians Are Coming. It's about a dozen pages long, illustrated with teepees and stick figures and loincloths. 
It explains that the U.S. government is helping Native people move from reservations to urban areas and assures the reader they simply want a better life. It urges the reader to, quote, treat them and accept them as individuals the same as you and I would like to be treated and accepted. But that's not what happened. Not for Doreen's family, not for anyone I talked to. I was squaw and Indian princess. Signs of the windows, no dogs or Indians allowed. One of the first houses my father bought, the neighborhood voted, voted that we couldn't live there. And everybody would take a nap, and I was put in a closet. He had to fight for like three months to get the pipe fitters local to accept him. I guess they didn't want me napping with the other kids. Just wasn't done to accept an Indian guy. By the 1960s, the architects of relocation and termination had retired, and the next generation of politicians was assessing the damage. In 1968, President Lyndon Johnson sent a letter to Congress calling for an end to termination. He called for Native people to have control over their own resources and governments, to have self-determination. By this time, the Congress had stopped terminating tribes, but more than 100 tribal communities had already been terminated, and the government didn't reinstate them. It also didn't restore more than a million acres that had already left tribal control. In his letter, Johnson asked for funding to improve roads, schools, and hospitals on reservations, as well as job training and better housing in urban areas. But his proposal stalled in Congress, and the relocation program continued. Now the Indians are getting even. They're moving to the city, getting militant, and are setting up their own alphabet organization to improve conditions. Shortly after Johnson sent his letter to Congress, a group of Native activists founded the American Indian Movement, or AIM, in Minneapolis to respond to the hardships Native people faced as a result of relocation. The key to AIM's program is Indian-directed help. Their first initiative was policing the police. AIM members patrolled the city, watching for police brutality against Native people. And then, their focus quickly broadened. From defending the rights of those on northern Minnesota reservations, to helping those in the cities find jobs and fight discrimination. Minneapolis and St. Paul, the Twin Cities, had become a magnet for Native people. They were never intended to be BIA relocation cities, but Native people made them relocation cities. The BIA would eventually set up an office in Minneapolis by popular demand. Native people chose the Twin Cities because they were close enough to many reservations to allow people to go back and forth. As the Native community grew, so did their political power. Doreen's mom got involved with AIM. Protesting the rat-infested, dilapidated housing that Indian people were living in. And I remember walking down Bloomington Avenue with my mother then. That's where it started. And so it just moved on and on. Like any time there was a situation where the community was being called together to, to stand up for our rights, she was there. What came to be called the Red Power Movement was gaining steam across the country. Cree singer Buffy St. Marie reached mainstream audiences with songs like this one, Native North American Child. On the West Coast, a group called Indians of All Tribes took over Alcatraz Island. The rock that uh, used to be a federal penitentiary, and all attempts to get them off have so far failed. Activists on the island cited a provision of the 1868 Treaty of Fort Laramie that stated all out-of-use federal land should return to Native people. Alcatraz had been vacant since the prison closed in 1963, and these activists, numbering in the hundreds, were there to collect. In the middle of this occupation, President Richard Nixon sent a message to Congress. Today, President Nixon said they were the most deprived minority group in this country, and he asked that some of the federal money spent on them, on the Indians, be controlled and spent by them instead of by federal bureaucrats. But the request was largely symbolic, so Native activists continued protesting. They took over Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. We're sick and tired of sitting back and uh, turning the other cheek and then bend over and get those other two kicked. You're going to see some wide awake 
educated Indians. We've got some new Indians coming up, new warriors. They took over the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington, D.C. The Indians have carted off truckloads of government documents, which they say will incriminate prominent politicians in thefts of Indian lands and mineral rights. In 1973, armed AIM activists made their most famous stand when they took over the town of Wounded Knee on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. It is not unusual for them to exchange fire at night with the federal officers. It lasted for 71 days. So, was it all worth it? Two dead, many injured, and over a million dollars worth of damage? That is something that can't be answered now. AIM members got the most media attention for their protests and armed occupations but they also ran programs that directly served Native people. AIM started a health clinic for Native people in Minneapolis, the first of its kind in the country. They managed the first and only American Indian preference housing project in the country. It's called Little Earth and includes more than 200 units on nearly 10 acres in Minneapolis. They don't run it anymore, but it still exists. AIM even had lawyers on staff to help Native families caught up with the legal system. That's why one day, Doreen's mom walked into the St. Paul American Indian Movement office, where she met Billy Blackwell and Eddie Benton Benet. So she tells him, I need you to come to court with me because they're trying to say I'm somebody doing something that I'm not, and I, they need to get it straightened out. The reason was, Doreen's older siblings were getting in fights at school, or more often, just not going. The social worker took it upon herself to go and file to take my mother's children away. Never once communicating to her, never coming to our house, never knowing where my mother, even if she even had a job, nothing. My mother was working. We were living in the projects. We had a curfew. We had supper together every night. She never drank. She never smoked a cigarette. The social worker assumed that because these kids were starting to speak up for themselves, that meant they were trouble, that meant that they came from a broken home, that meant that their parents were drinking, that meant all of the things that were like, you know, the stereotypical ways of thinking about who we are as Indigenous people. The context here is that Native children at this time, both on reservations and in cities, were being put in foster care left and right. As many as one in three Native children were being forcibly removed from their homes and placed with non-Native families. One common reason was truancy. Doreen's mom won in court with the help of AIM and their lawyer, but she didn't want to put her children back into public school. So she walked back into the AIM office in St. Paul. And she said, you've been talking about starting a school. Well, I need you to do that today. They named it the Red Schoolhouse. It opened in 1972 with an AIM-run sister school called Heart of the Earth in Minneapolis. They were among the first indigenous-controlled schools in the country. My sister Charlene. Hi, Charlene. Nice she to often meet describes me as a I met up with Doreen and her sister Charlene in front of the old Red Schoolhouse. They hadn't been back in years, and Charlene showed up early to offer a prayer and tobacco. You might have seen me. I walked in just a little bit and offered a sema to these trees that we planted so long ago. Charlene says before coming here as a kid, she hated school. It's hard sitting in the classroom when you are constantly hearing about Columbus and you're hearing, you know, not your history. And so we just didn't uh, participate that much in school. Doreen was in the sixth grade. Charlene was in the eighth. The first classes were held in a church basement and then a community center. In just a couple years, they would get this two-story brick building tucked into a working-class neighborhood in St. Paul. There were 150 students, K through 12. They learned reading and math here, as well as their own indigenous knowledge. And so to have an Indian person that sang to you like that, or that was just, you know, sitting in ceremony with you, or told you about tobacco, or, you know, told you about dancing, or helped you make your regalia, or so anything like that, anything like that was like so empowering. We walk inside. The building is still used for a school, just not the Red Schoolhouse, which ran into financial problems and closed in the 90s. And this is They still have them there. On either side of the staircase off the main entryway are two large murals with Native children in traditional regalia. This would be, this would be Eddie Benton's son and his daughter, the founder of this place. They're still here. That's amazing. These people deserve a heartfelt thanks for that. Both Doreen and Charlene touched the murals as they walked by. 
That's very incredible. After we walk through the school, we make our way to a picnic table in a corner of the garden in front. Doreen and Charlene tell me the small AIM-run school in St. Paul attracted visitors from all over the world. They remember a constant stream of outsiders, including prominent activists and native musicians like Buffy St. Marie and A. Paul Ortega. Let's sing just a few little seconds of one of A. Paul Ortega's songs and they can sort of get the feel, they might get the feeling of what we had, what our assembly might have been. We won't sing a lot. Should we sing Alinda, Alinda, Linda, Linda? That's the same thing I was thinking about. Okay. Alinda, Linda, Lynn, 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 yeah, Alinda, Linda, Lynn, Alinda, Linda, Alinda, Linda, But just this old Indian guy with a big cowboy hat yeah. strumming his guitar and singing that song, it made you feel so good to be you. Throughout the 1970s, as Native political power grew, oppressive federal policies began to unravel. President Richard Nixon appointed a Native American BIA commissioner, who ordered an end to relocation in 1972. The next year, Menominee activists successfully pushed for Congress to restore their tribal sovereignty, paving the way for others to do the same. Then, in 1975, Congress passed the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act. It explicitly stated that tribes have the right to manage their own affairs, including running their own schools. In 1978, Congress passed two more major laws, the Indian Child Welfare Act, meant to prevent Native children from being taken away from their parents and given to non-Native families, and the Indian Religious Freedom Act, which legalized Native religions. Before that, Native people often had to conduct ceremonies in secret and hide their sacred objects, lest they be confiscated and destroyed, or put in a museum. Doreen was still a student at the Red School House when she learned her father had died in northern Minnesota. Our father was murdered in the city of Virginia, and it's still an open case. Her father's body was found in a pond next to a rail line. He had never moved to St. Paul. He never really quit drinking either. But he would come visit once a month. He'd bring fresh rabbit and deer meat and sometimes some extra money. Sharon was 23 when it happened. She drove her mob up north to collect his remains. When they got to his home, they saw blood and a smashed bottle. And so then I went down to the police station in Virginia, and I said, um, why didn't you gather that as evidence? They're like, he fell. And then my mother got upset, you know, and um, my, my, my mother said to them was, when an Indian dies, you don't care. You don't do any investigation. Yeah, you've never arrested anybody for killing an Indian. Research shows that Native people are disproportionately likely to be victims of violence. Sharon and Doreen's niece was also killed in 2018, one of an unknown number of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Sharon had already gone to drug and alcohol treatment when her father died. She'd been sober for about two years. The night they buried him, she started drinking again. She drank for another six months before she got sober again. Luckily, I had, you know, I had a mother who, who said, you're going to do this. Shortly after, Sharon and Doreen went to their first Medewin ceremony. It's the traditional religion of the Ojibwe, Adawa, and Potawatomi. They say their traditions and spirituality help them heal from their trauma. Today, Doreen is a fourth-degree Medewin, which is like having a theology degree. She's also a midwife. She travels to tribal communities across the upper Midwest and Canada to teach the ceremonies and traditions that even when she was a teenager, were against the law. So does anyone here know the teaching of cedar? I went along with her on one trip she made to Michigan to teach members of the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi about birthing traditions. Some of the grandmothers that I have 
worked with. They call the, the cedar tree the grandmother medicine tree because she cleans away everything. So, for example, if you moved into a home and you didn't own that home... Nobody is going to heal us but ourselves. We have the stories, we have the medicines, we have the tools. Um, those are our gifts. Those are the things that our ancestors died for, that we need to pick up and and bring you know back into the breadth of the community. And, and it's happening, and it's happening all over Indian country. A growing body of research on what's called historical trauma shows how traumatic events can affect later generations. Events like violence in your family, having your religion banned, having your children taken away, being taken away, not being able to get a job or buy a house, even as a veteran entitled to GI benefits. Events like being relocated away from your family and removed from your land. When you're removed from the land that you know you belong to, that's traumatizing. And no one ever thinks of that, like being in a land, being in your place where you were born, being where your people are connected for generations upon generations. And you are, like, literally, relocation is like ripping you from everything you know. One longitudinal study of more than a 1,000 Native people living on or near reservations found higher rates of depression, substance use, and delinquent behaviors like stealing among the children and grandchildren of those who were relocated. Other studies have shown how Indian boarding schools and foster care also inflicted trauma that has affected later generations. Doreen's siblings are also working to help heal these wounds. Charlene works at the Minneapolis American Indian Center. Sharon founded and runs the Indigenous People's Task Force, which provides culturally specific health care and housing. Sharon's office is just a couple blocks away from the site of the sprawling homeless encampment, dubbed the Wall of Forgotten Natives, where we began this story. You know, the encampment really is um, the end result of all of these policies, all of these governmental failed policies towards American Indians for the last um, 500 years. She used to visit the encampment. We all went over and, you know, distributed sandwiches. And and one of my staff also took um, tobacco ties and offered those to people. We're going to do women and children first. Freezing temperatures and snow arrived in Minneapolis before the city had a better place to move people living in the encampment. People covered their nylon tents with several tarps and huddled around campfires right there on the sidewalk next to a highway. In mid-November, temperatures were so cold, I saw someone with frostbite get taken away in an ambulance. It hurts. Why do you think I have such a hard time walking? That same day, I met a man who had just returned from the hospital with second-degree burns on his face and hands from his tent catching on fire. Native American-led nonprofits in the area did what they could. The Red Lake Nation also stepped in. The tribe offered the city land it owns on the other side of the highway from the encampment to build an emergency shelter. More than 150 people from the encampment moved in. Red Lake did this despite being one of the poorest tribes in the state. One day in March, I drove north five hours from the Twin Cities to the Red Lake Reservation to see Tribal Secretary Sam Strong to find out why. I was worried about these driveways. Sam met me at the Tribal Council building on the southern shore of Red Lake. He told me to get into his pickup truck. The only way to see the reservation is to drive, and he didn't trust my car in the snow. Sam is 35 years old. He wears his hair in a long braid down his back. Today, he's got on a Red Lake Warriors basketball jersey to support the girls' team playing in the state tournament in Minneapolis. So yeah, we shut down. You know, it kind of seems like a weekend here, huh? Everyone's down supporting the girls. The reservation covers about 1,300 square miles of forest and most of Red Lake. As we drive, you see ice fishing tents dotting the frozen lake to the horizon. Sam points out the building where the tribe processes the million or so pounds of walleye pulled from the lake each year. I remember when I was a little kid, I would look up at the maps. Red Lake is so large that it's actually represented on most maps, which is awesome. Because <laughs> as a little kid, you always looked for it and, you know, always thought, hey, that's where I'm from. Sam didn't grow up on the reservation. His dad went on relocation to Los Angeles in the 60s. 
and then moved to Minneapolis, where Sam was born. Shortly after, they moved to North Carolina, where Sam grew up. Sam's path back to the reservation started when he was 16 years old and entered treatment for drug and alcohol addiction in North Carolina. It was a culturally specific facility run by the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. And an elder there said he should go to Minnesota and work for his own tribe. In the treatment center, he said, you know what? I want you to be a planner. I want you to go back to your people and plan out your community in a way that is respectful of our traditions. And I know you can do it because I see that you have respect for our people and our way of life, but you also understand how to work in today's world. And you can combine those two. And so I became a planner based off that, that lesson from an elder when I was 16 years old. Mm. Wow. But a planner seems like an oddly specific thing for an elder to... To point out? <laughs> yeah. It's crazy, right? And then I did it. <laughs> That's even the crazier part. Um, After treatment, Sam yeah, finished high school and then got accepted to Cornell University. My first summer after going off to school, I came back and I started uh, to work as a planner in the Tribal Roads and Engineering Department. After college, Sam moved back to the reservation with his dad. He eventually got a job as the Director of Economic Development. It's only recently, in 2018, that he was elected tribal secretary. It's one of three full-time council positions along with the chairman and treasurer. It's a challenging job. Of the 5,000 tribal members living on the reservation, 90% live below the poverty level. Most people live in small, manufactured homes spread far apart, which means if you can't afford a car, and many can't, it's hard to get around the reservation, and even harder to get a job. The reservation's remote location also means its casino isn't very profitable. But to see the reservation through Sam's eyes is to see its possibilities. You know, we want to have everything here to thrive. And yes, we want to improve our educational systems. We have a tribal college now, a two-year program. We want it to be a four-year program and a PhD program. We want to be fully independent. You know, one of our goals here is to be a sovereign nation, totally independent. And by that I mean energy, food, culture, education, and our economy. It's an ambitious goal, but in just about every facet of self-sustainability, the tribe is making progress. Sam helped start a food sovereignty program with the goal of growing enough produce to feed the tribe and then some. A couple years in, and they have a few productive acres, but they recently ran into a familiar roadblock finding a bank to loan them money for a tractor. Energy-wise, they have some geothermal and are looking to build a solar garden. In education, Red Lake has expanded Ojibwe language instruction in school with the aim of having a full immersion program, K-12, one day. In Minneapolis, they also found a way to provide health care to people living in the encampment and use their tribal authority to provide housing subsidies to over 100 people. Yeah, and I think the important thing about being from Red Lake is that it's a way of life. And that way of life can be lived in Minneapolis. It can be lived in Red Lake. It can be lived wherever they are. And we want to maintain that identity. We want to maintain that culture. And in today's world, we've got to look at the reality of where our people are. Half of Red Lake band members live off the reservation, mostly in or near Minneapolis. Across the country today, more than two-thirds of Native Americans live in urban areas. Sometimes there are disputes and jabs between urban and country relatives, but people also move and travel back and forth a lot. Red Lake's newest project is a 110-unit affordable housing complex in Minneapolis. The building will also have a health care center, substance abuse treatment, and a Red Lake embassy. The cool part about it all is that not only does it work, but it will benefit us in the long term. It creates sustainability. So now we're, you know, I, I did it out of my heart to do the right thing, but it's also a great business decision. You know, we're, we're being a developer. We're creating assets. We're internalizing our healthcare functions and providing better healthcare, but also instead of someone else profiting off of substandard healthcare for our people, we're providing a higher level of service and keeping those dollars internal to, to benefit everyone. So it, it's really a, an empowering thing and You know what they say, do things for the right reason and good things will happen to you. 
Now we're going to turn it over to the Red Lake Singers. They're going to sing a song for us. In September, Red Lake held a groundbreaking ceremony for that project, its first housing project off the reservation. It's on land the tribe owns just on the other side of the highway from where the encampment was. Sam joined five other men at a giant drum to sing. Then, tribal chairman Daryl Siki took the microphone. He greets the crowd. Behind him is a giant backhoe and over 20 gold shovels emblazoned with Ojibwe floral patterns. Most of the tribal council and hereditary chiefs are here. So is the mayor of Minneapolis and representatives of 17 other groups who are helping fund and finance the $42 million project. And then Sam takes the microphone. This is going to be a place where our people can gather, but not only gather, carry on our way of life. You know, many of us were displaced here through many various things, such as the relocation era, such as boarding schools, and this trauma has hurt our people. And this development is the start of a path towards healing. Then there's the symbolic dirt shoveling, the photo op, and then the crowd lines up for buffalo burgers and wild rice salad. Tonight, some people will drive home to the reservation, and some will drive just down the block. They'll be together again in just a few months for the tribe's Christmas celebration. Next year, Red Lake hopes to have it in their new building. They've named the building Minobima Ziwin, which means live the good life. You've been listening to Uprooted, the 1950s plan to erase Indian country, from Minnesota Public Radio and APM Reports. It was reported and produced by me, Max Nesterak, and edited by Catherine Winter. It was mixed by Corey Schreppel. Web editors are Dave Mann and Andy Cruz. This song is called Relocation by the native rock group Exit. Special thanks to Anton Troyer and to the librarians at the Newberry Library, Hennepin County Library, the National Archives, the University of Minnesota, and the University of Maryland. We have more on the story, including documents and videos we found in those libraries, on our website, apmreports.org. This is APM, American Public Media.